Hello and welcome to This Study Shows. I'm Danielle George. And I'm Marianne O'Hotter. This Study Shows is a podcast from Wiley Research and it's all about research communication. We're looking at research communication from every angle, identifying why it matters and learning new skills from the people out there who are absolutely nailing it. And the question that's going to lead us today is where did that idea come from? Basically, this episode is all about ideas. We're going to explore how communicating the full extent of your idea, its origins, its journey, your conclusions, is a big part of gaining trust. Now, through time and across cultures, you'll find plenty of examples of people believing very odd things indeed, or sometimes things that are verifiably wrong. But for whatever reason, they don't believe the evidence that is presented to them. Maybe they've got alternative facts. Maybe they just don't care what the truth is. But why? And crucially, what should scientists and researchers do about it? Now, Danielle, I met a really interesting researcher called Kaylin O'Connor. She's a philosopher of science at UC Irvine, and she's written a book called The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread. One thing that's really important to understand about the way humans form beliefs is that we are super social creatures, and the way we form beliefs is really social too. So we have a kind of idea that humans are rational, and this actually comes from philosophy, that we usually form our beliefs by thinking carefully about things, and we're really different from all these animals around us, and that we have these big brains. It's true that we do, and we do a lot of rational thinking. But really, most of the things we believe we picked up generally unreflexively from people around us. So someone tells us, don't touch that spider, that spider is poisonous, and then you form a belief, oh, that's a poisonous kind of spider. So ideas spread, they almost travel like a virus sometimes from person to person to person. So how do we determine who or what is trustworthy or not? Like, how do you establish being a source of trust, particularly if you're, say, a researcher or a scientist? Well, there are two things. The way people actually do it and the way they ideally should do it as a researcher or a scientist. So if we look at the way people, in fact, establish trust with each other, it's often based on simple heuristics, things like, this is someone I like, this is someone who's a friend of mine or part of my family, or this is someone who shares identity aspects with me. They are of my same race or my same gender, or they like football the same way I like football. So that's what people tend to do in deciding who to trust, um, whose beliefs they should take on. In reality, that doesn't always work so well. <laughs> They're trusting the person who likes football the way you do is not necessarily going to get you the best sets of beliefs. Um, when you look at groups of researchers and scientists, they're often trying to do it in a better way. So, for example, by looking at who before has shared true beliefs with me, um, who has a real incentive to make sure that what they say is true. And if you use those kinds of questions to decide trust, you tend to do a bit better. Researchers are scientists, yes, but first and foremost, they're humans as well. So I'm, I'm assuming scientists aren't infallible. Oh, absolutely not. Scientists use all the same heuristics that other people use in deciding who to trust. So this has been 
pointed out a lot by sociologists of science, by feminists, by feminist philosophers of science, for instance, that scientists, for example, will use gender and race in deciding which other scientists to trust, whose other ideas to take up, whose work to build upon. And there's nothing rational about that or nothing about that kind of practice that would make scientists better at doing science. Can you give me an example where humanity has trumped science amongst scientists, sort of the the times where the evidence points so clearly to one thing and yet culture or the desire to conform or not step out of the mould has actually trumped. Yes. I mean, this has happened many times in the history of science. So one example that is quite famous had to do with this Viennese physician named Ignaz Semmelweis. So he was working in an obstetric clinic in Vienna. And so he was training doctors in the first obstetrical clinic of Vienna. And then right next door, midwives were being trained in the second obstetrical clinic. And the thing was that the doctors had just sort of a terrible track record. So about 3% of patients were dying who saw midwives, but 10% of patients were dying who were seeing the doctors. So they were mostly dying of an infection that they called childbed fever. Um, And he had this kind of brainwave when a fellow physician was doing an autopsy and cut himself and then died of something that looked a lot like childbed fever. And Semmelweis thought, well, maybe there's something in the cadaver, some kind of particle that was transferred into his body and killed him. And maybe all these students who I have doing autopsies and then going to deliver these babies are carrying the same kind of cadaverous particle to the women and making them sick. And so he developed this hand-washing practice And the death rate went way down in his clinic. So there was really good evidence. But when he tried to publish this and get other doctors to take up the hand-washing, they didn't do it. And part of the reason was they were offended by the suggestion that they as gentlemen might have unclean hands. How were they able to ignore such compelling evidence? You know, women are dying here, women aren't dying there, so therefore let's start washing our hands. Well... I think that people are actually really good at ignoring compelling evidence. (laughs) Uh, I would say kind of a general (laughs) feature of people is that we, when there are pressing social reasons to ignore evidence, we tend to do that. People have always been prone to holding false beliefs because we trust other people and we spread our beliefs socially. That goes back all the way in human history. So fundamentally, we have to sit with the reality that saying this is true isn't enough. We have to actually reach out to build trust on that that human, emotional, irrational level as well. Yeah, just giving people the evidence and saying something's true, we know that that alone doesn't work. In fact, this connects up with this really important idea that's out there about the marketplace of ideas. So I think there's this notion that if you just throw ideas out into this marketplace, there are going to be forces by which the true ideas, the best ideas rise to the top and the false ones just fall away. But if we look at the recent history of belief, we can see that's not really true, especially when you have these really powerful influencers working to fight against uh, true beliefs in many cases. So if you want to 
fight against them, you can't just trust that the good ideas will reach the top. You have to actually do something. So that's quite a sobering truth, isn't yeah. it, Danielle? Yeah, it is. What I, what I found really interesting about that was the fact that we might selectively accept information that supports the views of a, of a particular culture or religion or football team or political group. You could throw as many facts as you want or more information as you want, but it won't change that person's mind as long as the membership in their identity group depends on them holding that particular view. The other thing was obviously the example of Ignat Semmelweis, the the doctor who worked out that handwashing can save lives. That happened not that long ago, but obviously it still happens now. Scientists aren't immune to this. They mm. still want and need to be part of a social group. They need to maintain their authority within their peers. And sometimes challenging the status quo might put that in jeopardy. And at that point, maybe your brain decides not to pay attention to the evidence. The next person I want to introduce you to is Dr. Friederike Hendricks. And it's sort of related, given what Kaelin had to say about the spread of misinformation. This is about how can scientists with credible information win people's trust. So Friederike is a postdoc at the University of Munster in Germany and she does research into the field of science of science communication with a psychological perspective. So I spoke to her about the core characteristics that a scientist should demonstrate in order to be trusted. Psychology sometimes deals with very intricate problems um, of cognition, for example, of the mind. And I wanted to research an uh, area that is more socially relevant as well. And being like kind of a science nerd, uh, I was really interested in kind of how people learn from science and science communication. My dissertation actually focused mainly on uh, how people trust scientists and what kind of makes up well, their perception of the trustworthiness of a scientist. So in that paper, you define something called epistemic trustworthiness. Could you just explain what epistemic trustworthiness is, please? So epistemic trustworthiness is necessary in a situation in which I, as kind of someone who wants to find out about something, um, I do not have knowledge about that um, specific topic. So I um, look for someone else and I kind of have expectations about who this person should be. So um, this person should be an expert in their um, domain. They should act with integrity, for example, be honest. And then also um, they have general helpful attitude. So I kind of infer about characteristics of someone else that make him a trustworthy expert that I can rely on in terms of knowledge. For the three characteristics, so expertise, integrity and benevolence, are they are they weighted the same? I think that um, they kind of are. Um, all of all three of them are important, but I think that in the eyes of the public um, for specific topics, one or the other might become more relevant. So how, how can us as individuals appear more trustworthy? Well, I mean... Of course, um, you can fake uh, your trustworthiness only somewhat, I think. Basically, people are really sensitive towards someone, you know, making flaws, um, admitting that something is not right. 
uh, they, they find out by the language you're using, for example, more aggressive language will make you less trustworthy. So there's a rich a set of cues that people use to find out if there's something wrong with your trustworthiness. Um, but uh, especially if you want to establish trustworthiness, you know, um, I think especially for scientists, it's most important to show that you um, are an expert on your topic, that you're using reliable methods and that you're um, kind of uh, not swayed by financial interest, but rather uh, want to really contribute to the field, for example, talking about your motives of doing science. This is something that would maybe help, I think. Yeah. Since 2015, we've had sort of politicians both in the UK and the US saying that they've had enough of experts. Um, yeah. Do you think the, it feels to me like the landscape has changed since 2015. Do you think there are more, there's more or less trust in experts now? I personally, I try to look at the evidence and just now um, the Pew Research Center in the US has published another finding that trust in, in science and scientists has stayed stable. Um, the same has been found in Germany. So um, the evidence kind of shows us that in general, trust is all right, staying the same and maybe being even on the rise. But I think that there's um, groups in society, and I think this is true for many countries, Germany as well, uh, where their science skepticism um, is really or makes up part of their identity, but also the political campaigning that people are doing. What do you make of Friederike's um, research? I mean, do you think that you demonstrate an appropriate level of expertise, integrity and benevolence? Yeah, you see, I, so I, I really struggled with this when I was talking to, to Friederike as well, because I think a massive part of research for me is failure. Okay. And so you have to, you have to fail in order to, to do research because you're pushing the, the boundaries of innovation, right? And, and if you're not doing that, then you're not doing new research. And so you have to fail in order to push the boundaries. So therefore I fail, so I don't get it right. And what Friederike was saying to me when I chatted to her was, okay, well, because you've got something wrong, someone might not trust you as much anymore. And I suppose also the, the basis of empirical research is testing hypotheses and various iterations that get us closer and closer to a a, tr a truth, but each study may be overlaid by by the next one that shows us something different. So fundamentally, science is always about proving the previous guy's wrong. <laughs> yes, to a certain extent, I suppose. Yeah, and that previous guy could be you as well. You're not proving yourself wrong, but you're sort of saying, right, this is what I thought at the time. Um, but I've done some more tests or whatever it is, and and now I think this. You're pushing the boundaries in science, so so you are going to get things wrong. And I'm quite happy to to say. So what I think makes me trustworthy, I hope, is that I'm able to say, oh yeah, I got that wrong. That so actually, being honest and transparent about exactly. the process, yeah, should be a basis for trust, not for untrustworthiness. Yeah, exactly. So I think we've probably established that the basis in which we trust people or don't trust people is is bonkers and illogical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much That's where we've situation. got to, I think. Yes. <laughs> the other thing that 
I think shapes the debate about science communication now a lot is is the importance of storytelling. It's absolutely everywhere, this idea that we should all be storytellers, that we are instinctively drawn to stories. I think fundamentally one of my real questions is, is how important is that when you're actually sharing factually accurate information and how much of it is a nice-to-have that's on the side. So I wanted to talk to Will Storr, who is an expert in storytelling. I'm a writer who writes often about ideas in science, and my most recent book is The Science of Storytelling, which looks at kind of how and why we tell stories from a scientific point of view. The reason I wanted to talk to Will was because we hear so much these days about how all of us should be storytellers in some way or another. But I wanted to find out why. What's the big deal? So storytelling is kind of how we understand ourselves, is how we understand the world. There's a, there's quite a, a common, you know, line that's thrown around, which is the self is a story, and that kind of sounds a bit woo-woo and a bit like a bad TED talk, <laughs> but but it isn't. And, and and the way to understand it is to flip it around. The way I think is 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 that is that stories are like a self. The reason that we tell stories in the way that we do, in the structure that we do, is is because over the kind of decades and millennia, people have worked out by trial and instinct, almost how the brain works, how the mind works, how we process reality. So, so the reason that we structure stories in the way that we do mimics the way brains process reality. So Will explained that the brain tells us stories all the time, not just when we're being told a fiction, but when we're trying to make sense of the everyday world around us. And during that process, the brain tends to simplify the chaos it draws conclusions about cause and effect and always puts us, the human, at the centre of the story. And good stories do exactly the same thing. They tap into that sense-making process that our brain is doing all the time anyway. When stories are working really well, they become an alternative consciousness that kind of slots into our brains. And and when you put people in brain scanners who are kind of under the spell of story, they call it, they've been transported, the the effect is transportation, they find the sense of self diminishes. And there's all kinds of tricks for doing that. One of the the most important ones, one of the most sort of fundamental ones is is this idea of cause and effect. You know, one thing leading to another, leading to another, leading to another. Can you give me some examples of good stories that really show how simplicity, cause and effect and change work? One of the examples that I talk about when I'm teaching my course is Twin Peaks, because Twin Peaks is a really good example because it's done well and it's done badly. So when Twin Peaks first... um, uh, was broadcast back when I was, you know, in my early teens, I think. Um, it was probably one of the first ever sort of big blockbuster long-form TV shows that we're kind of so familiar with now. And it was very simple. Laura Palmer, the you know, the perfect prom queen um, in the town of Twin Peaks, in the little town of Twin Peaks, is her, her body's washed up, covered in polythene, and she's dead. And the question is, who killed Laura Palmer? And so here, here comes the FBI agent, Dale Cooper, to ask that, answer that question. So it's very simple storytelling, very effective. And then a, a couple of years ago, Twin Peaks came back to great fanfare. And it's just hilarious because you've got... Um, You've got all this stuff happening at the beginning of the Return to Olympics, and none of it makes sense. First, you've got Cooper, the FBI agent, and then Laura Palmer's there, and she's dead. And then they kiss, and then she takes her face off, and then um, <laughs> th- there's no adherence to cause and effect. And, and you very quickly lose patience with it. And of course, some people would love that, but it wasn't recommissioned. <laughs> <at the laughs> Will, why do you think scientists need to be storytellers? You've also got to think about the kind of the the, the kind of root purpose of story. What while we actually start telling stories to each other, and one of the, you know evolutionarily speaking, 
one of the ways that we, you know, tell stories, especially to children in our extended childhoods, is that is that that's the best way in which we learn. You know, we 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 learn much better when we are given facts in story form because the story becomes compelling and emotional and interesting rather than this kind of dry, dry list of facts. Because there's a tension with science communication, and that is that story always wants to be simple, and it always wants to tell a kind of a usually wants to tell a kind of heroic story about this amazing scientist who you know, stood up to the orthodoxy and had this great idea and she bashed down all the, you know, this, that and the other. Um, but you've got to kind of balance that obviously with the truth and the truth, especially in science, is often complex and unsatisfying and difficult. So I think really, really good science communication manages to kind of walk that line. I think the trick is to be simple in the, in, 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 as the story begins, you know, focusing on one person in one moment, having one amazing idea or struggling to work out one amazing idea. But then allowing that complexity to and 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 the, the the kind of the other sides of that story to come through in, in a kind of simple but meaningful way, kind of as the story moves on. So when we're talking about storytelling in science, do we inevitably mean telling the story of the scientists? Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any inevitability about it. I think it doesn't have to be this kind of classic. Um, heroic narrative of the of the lone scientist against the orthodoxy that, that, you know that's not the only way of telling stories you know a big, a big one is it's a big idea in journalism long-form journalism is that you present the you know reader with a puzzle and, and there's, there's something about the world that you don't understand uh, you know a very famous Malcolm Gladwell story is about the science of taste about about you know what we know about how, how we taste things and the way he tells that story is by is by asking the question how is it that we can go into a supermarket and there's a zillion different brands of mustard that all sell, but there's only one brand of ketchup that anybody ever buys in proper quantities, and that's Heinz tomato ketchup. Somehow, somehow he makes us really interested in this puzzle. So, so, so it's not just about characters. It's about, you know, that, that, that kind of Gladwellian version of scientific storytelling is, is, is more like a detective story about like, like Prime Suspect or The Killing, where you have this mystery, um, which becomes the kind of narrative drive of the story. Do you think there's a risk that we're slightly underestimating our audiences by by saying, oh, no, look, we have to be storytellers. We have to tell stories. We have to make it simple. We have to make it compelling. Someone needs to be the hero. They need to go on an adventure to, you know, slay a dragon, scientific <laughs> dragon, whatever it is. Are we, are we either pandering to idiots or <laughs> assuming that our audience are idiots? And actually, we should just say, well, this is true. No. Shouldn't I, that I, be enough? The, the, the point is that, that that brains understand the world in story structure in causes and effects, and, and you know, and most of how we think is is not factual, but it's emotional. Like if you're a scientist communicating with other other scientists, you don't really need story structure because they're already interested in what you've got to say. But if you're actually trying to communicate to people who aren't naturally interested in science, then you you should use story structure because you're making people emotionally interested, emotionally engaged in what you've got to tell them um, uh, by using story. So they become interested. In in these in these slightly arcane kind of niche ideas that you want to express, and again, just because you're using story structure, it doesn't mean that you're sacrificing any kind of truth. It's just about, it's just about understanding that you need to you know take one idea at a time, leading to the next idea, rather than giving them fifteen ideas at once. You know, in my course, I get people from the, from from you know technology companies who they love data. They sit and talk about kind of data all day, so that they're a bit suspicious about these ideas. And it's like, but that 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 that, that that's an easy problem to solve to get people interested in something they're already interested in. You don't need to think about story structure in those circumstances. But if you're trying to communicate with everybody else in the world, you do because otherwise, why do you think they're going to be interested in your weird little niche pocket of the world? 
That's quite a compelling case you've made there. (laughs) I think fundamentally it boils down to the fact that people believe information given to them by people they trust. Mm. And so it's imperative that scientists are visible, accessible and personable. Mm. Like they come across as real humans who are transparent and are doing their... Their, their best work to try and make their information as clear and comprehensible as possible to as wide an audience as possible. And and the bottom line is we can't stay in our ivory towers saying, well, we're doing proper research and that should be enough. We have to engage with the hurly-burly of the real world. Absolutely. Okay, so we've just got time to see what new entries we've got in the Wiley Research Fictionary. As a reminder, we are calling on our podcast guests, listeners and followers on social media to tell us their made-up words and phrases and help us build up a dictionary for all those experiences, both specific and universal, that happen in the life of a researcher. Mine was ice cream head. And mine is canthropology, which is the beer at the end of a long day of anthropology, which is my specialism. (laughs) And here's our entry from Friederike Hendricks. My word is Wissenschaftskommunikationsrezeption. And it's kind of a typical German composite made up of different words and it means um, the reception or um, understanding of science communication. And from Kaylin O'Connor. The word I'd like to contribute is productinating, which I use to describe the practice where you, because you're putting off writing some really difficult or important paper or doing something really hard, you manage to get a ton of small stupid tasks done, like you finish all your email, (laughs) or you even could productionate by cleaning your house. And I do this pretty often. I find my grad students do too. Two great contributions to the Wiley Research Fictionary. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Study Shows. If you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. We'd love to hear from you. This Study Shows was presented by me, Marianne O'Hotter, and me, Danielle George. It's a Wise Budder production for Wiley Research. The producer was Maddie Hickish, the executive producer from Wise Budder was Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research was Samantha Green. Mm-hmm.